Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning shot. Welcome to Morning Shot. I'm Ryan Huang. At the recent ASEAN Finance Ministers and Central Bank Governors meeting in Jakarta, Singapore's Deputy Prime Minister Lawrence Wong called for a stronger ASEAN to compete on the world stage with bigger economies. Key themes that came into focus include boosting ASEAN cooperation in areas like financial integration, regional payment connectivity, as well as building sustainable infrastructure. For a deeper analysis on those issues, we are joined by Angela Mancini, partner and head of APEC Markets at Control Risks. Good morning, Angela. Thanks for joining us on the show. Good morning. Great to be here. Hey, so you are watching this space very closely. So I want to get help first to set up the context. When we talk about ASEAN trade, what is the landscape right now? Are we progressing well in terms of improving trade matters? Yeah, I mean, it is progressing, but I think, you know, we need to take a step back to your point and, and look at the wider context. So ASEAN is a potentially a fantastic market. It's actually the fifth largest economy in the world. It's over 660 million people. It's a $3.2 trillion economy. Um, it's growing historically five and a half, close to 6%. I think the challenge is this year, and, and this is what came out of the meeting, there's obviously global and regional downward pressures on growth. So we're looking at only about four and a half percent, but it's a very dynamic market. Mm. A lot of opportunity across manufacturing services, big trends in digitization, big trends in green economy. The challenge, however, as ASEAN's always had is it's, you know, it's not a, a cohesive single market like the EU. There's mm-hmm. 10 countries varying um, GDP uh, purchasing power parity uh, statistics. They're varying uh, systems in terms of economic uh, and political systems. So therein lies a challenge. So in sum, the the situation with ASEAN is improving, but it's always going to be a challenge to get regional consensus, particularly when it relates to economic matters. Yeah, improving, promising, lots of potential. Uh, I suppose regulatory frameworks could go some ways to harmonizing some of that and streamlining some of the growth potential. So when we talk about regulations, what are some of the things you think could do better when you look at some of the gaps perhaps existing to boost investor confidence in the region? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the, the one that comes up a lot, and we can talk more about it, is the ASEAN Digital Economy Framework Agreement. So a lot of varying laws across ASEAN, some improving and some going in the wrong direction as it relates to, to localization of data privacy laws and how you localize mm. data, basically how companies are meant to store, handle, and transfer data or not. And that's of increasing importance as the digital economy across ASEAN booms, right? I mean, there's more and more people across ASEAN that are trading digitally, buying things online, trading online and the like. But I think more broadly, it's important to say, and and again, we can talk more about what that framework would entail. But more importantly than that, what we're finding with our clients at Control Risk, we advise about 80% of the Fortune 500 with a lot of interest in ASEAN, of course, is um, not just regulatory frameworks, but the broader business environment. So we can't lose sight of things like predictability. Right. So we know ASEAN, especially in the China plus one and the kind of de-risking environment we're in as it relates to China, is a huge opportunity. But ASEAN's competing with India, with Mexico, Poland. You know, we're having CEOs come talk to us about a range of options across the globe. And so it's not just regulation, but it's clean governance. It's not having political crises. We've had some pretty significant political transitions across ASEAN. Anti-corruption crackdowns that could be seen as being you know, politicized or politically driven economic nationalism is on the rise and we can talk about you know mm. indonesia and some of the you know palm oil and coal export bans and the the kind of um 
a concern over whether or not uh, investors can get access to nickel out of Indonesia, which is of increasing importance, of course, for EV batteries and the like. So the point is, you, there are definitely regulations across ASEAN to improve, but it's also not losing sight of the traditional issues around clean governance, a transparent, predictable business environment for investors that increasingly can be found in other markets globally. And, and that's not something to lose sight of. Yeah, that's a long list of uh, to-do things uh, for ASEAN nations to take note of. And I think it's a very interesting point that you raise as well, data privacy compared to the EU, which has a more, in some sense, homogeneous economy. You've got data privacy regulations in various stages across ASEAN. And when you look at the ASEAN framework, I suppose that's a challenge as well. It's a consensus-based framework. Yeah, it's a consensus-based framework as, as it was you know, designed to be. You know, and when you think about things like a digital framework, which again, as we said, is quite important, it's hard because you've got you know, countries like Singapore and Malaysia that top the list in terms of uh, the rules, the privacy rules and, and, and keeping data flows open. And then you've got some countries like Thailand, Philippines, and Vietnam that are uh, improving in some areas. But then you've got, of course, Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar, which fall way behind. But um, interestingly, you have countries like Vietnam and Thailand that, and, and potentially Cambodia, we hear, that are uh, increasing the uh, regulations to keep data local. And that's a problem, not just if you're in a technology platform company or if you're running a tech unicorn, you know, ASEAN is lucky in having over 30 tech unicorn companies here in, in uh, the region. But it becomes an issue because if you're a global company or even a, a large regional company, how you actually store information on the cloud, and almost everyone has data, you have customer data, you have supply data, you have employee data, where are you storing that data? How is that data allowed to be moved around can you upload data to an Office 365 cloud server? Can you transfer mm. personal data to Kazakhstan? How are you doing your business process outsourcing? Where does that all sit? It's very kind of nitty-gritty operational risk that clients are facing, but there our clients, we find, are very much wanting to be in compliance, of course, with all the local laws, but it's becoming difficult because about 70% of those laws may be the same country by country, but it's that 20 to 30% where there's regulatory divergence that really gets clients tangled up. Everyone's trying to comply, but as you're trying to comply, that also opens you to cyber hacks and leaks, uh, which are also a big problem. Yeah, talk about regulatory divergence. Now, we've been hearing quite a bit about non-tariff barriers across ASEAN, where people or regulations become a bit of a red tape to promoting trade. With the implementation of RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, have you been seeing some progress on that front, eliminating some of these non-tariff barriers? Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, that's been happening. Uh, but I think the challenge is that you've got so many, and, you, and we know this, there's so many different types of groupings now. So we have RCEP, and I think RCEP's making improvements. There's competition globally happening around these arrangements. We see this even as recently as a week, two weeks ago with BRICS and the expansion of BRICS. Mm -hmm. So there's other games in town, so to speak, globally besides just RCEP. And then you also have, you know, and quite rightly so, individual countries within ASEAN actually also driving their own economic development. So we saw quite recently Vietnam in the last two weeks announce an upgrade to their bilateral partnership with the United States, which then, of course, will afford a lot of benefits to Vietnam in that trading relationship. It puts uh, the U.S. on par with China as it relates to the real trading relationship with Vietnam. But then, of course, the question more broadly becomes, 
what happens with the U.S. election down the road in, you know, 24 months? Do we see a different U.S. Mm. Um, administration? And what does that mean then for the potential tariffs back on Vietnam goods because the surplus with the U.S. doesn't go in the direction that the U.S. wants? So all to say a lot of regional groupings, a lot of globally, a lot of bilateral relationships that countries are trying to drive, it makes it very complicated. So while we do see the overall trajectory heading in the right direction, uh, in most cases for trade, aside from some economic nationalism issues we discussed, I think it just becomes, if you're a global company, and we, again, we, we work in that private sector space, it just becomes very hard to navigate uh, all of these yeah. <laughs> different countries and regulations, while also not losing sight of the fact that ASEAN's a phenomenal potential growth opportunity, again, particularly in digitization and green, and green economy space. Yeah, well, in conversation with Angela Mancini, she's the partner and head of APEC Markets at Control Risks. Now, Angela, this is a point you raised and it's quite interesting as well. Uh, what's playing out in terms of geopolitics? And of course, the big issue here is the trade tensions between the US and China, both important trading partners for ASEAN. Talk to us about the complications or the sensitivities in play here for an ASEAN nation to figure out how to navigate this space because on one hand, you've got uh, the China plus one narrative playing out, but at the same time, you got to figure out as well, do you take the side of one or the other? Yeah, that, I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of an issue that, of course, governments across ASEAN are facing, but also companies because, you know, as a private sector company, no matter what sector you're in, what you're trying to do is do the best you can by your shareholders, your stakeholders, um, you sell as much as you can, trade as much as you can in the most legally, ethically way possible. Um, you know, of course, it's a very simplistic answer to say ASEAN governments and also companies don't want to have to choose. The way you continue to navigate that as the tensions increase is difficult. I was at a discussion that IISS put on last week with the Prime Minister of Qatar, who was actually raised, had the same uh, question raised to him, which as a quote-unquote smaller state, how do you navigate it? And I think some of the lessons there are quite valid for us here in ASEAN, which is primarily don't think in binary terms. You know, I don't think that looking at just what the U.S. or what China would prefer in any given situation is the way to go from what we've heard our leaders say. It's more about kind of trying to race to the top in terms of whether it's diplomacy or business, not being a price taker, as it were, but really trying to think, how do you choose based on ASEAN interests? So whether it's, again, a given political or a business situation, how do you uh, look at all the options open to, which could include other you know, regional players as well, like Japan and South Korea, but kind of looking at how do you stay a vital integral player, again, in the diplomatic or the business space and not being pushed into the situation where you need to choose keeping options open and, and really working across different regional groupings, again, diplomatically and, and from a business perspective, which I think ASEAN is doing quite brilliantly. Yeah, Angela, on that front, a lot has been said about sustainability. And I think many ASEAN nations are trying to do their part. But how difficult is it to get everyone on the same page when it comes to the different levels of progress, different stages of development, and of course, difference in regulations? Yeah, I think uh, that's another obviously key issue. Again, if when you think about ASEAN growth, there's manufacturing, of course, but really it's a lot around di the digital economy as we've been discussing and then also the green economy. There is a huge opportunity for ASEAN with the green economy. There are countries like Japan, South Korea, the U.S., the EU, uh, companies around those markets that are looking quite actively at sustainable green projects across ASEAN through public-private sector, you know, public-private partnerships or just direct investments. I think the challenge is what ASEAN's had a hard time doing is actually finding those projects for those investors to invest in. And, and to your point, 
Part of the problem is regulation, but a lot of it is also around how clean are those projects from both a you know an authentic green perspective, but then also from a you know corruption perspective. And this gets back to the issue around transparency and good governance, as we were saying earlier. So if you look at the new capital city uh, for Jakarta, New Centara, uh, from what we understand, there's not yet one private sector investor mm-hmm. that's been able to really green light that should be the infrastructure project of the century. But again, when you're actually you know, on the ground trying to do that investment, trying to potentially even access subsidies that the EU and the U.S. might be giving um, alongside for investments in green projects, it's very hard. Who are the stakeholders? Are they really interested in actually meeting those targets? Do the, are the projects going to meet the COP26 targets from Glasgow? And then, you know, as we look forward to the next COP28 this, this uh, December. So all to say... A lot of potential opportunities. And again, to your point, the regulations are an issue, but it's really hard to find those projects that actually are going to meet those targets, which for a lot of the investor companies, if you're a pension fund, a sovereign wealth fund, big private equity, it's not a nice to have that you're meeting those green targets in actuality. It's a, it's a need to have because they have their own stakeholders, their own investors, they have their own targets, they must meet them. And if they can't meet them in ASEAN, if they can't find the projects that are actually going to be green and also you know not tainted by any kind of crony capitalism and, and the like, then they're going to have to go to some of those other markets we discussed. All right, Andrea, it does sound like it's quite challenging overcoming this um, financing gap, so to speak, that you're alluding to. You know, investors are not getting the certainty they need or the clarity they want. So on that front, how optimistic are you in terms of improvement or at least progress being made in the near future? Yeah, I do really, uh, you know, take the hats off to all the finance ministers and central banks around ASEAN who were just in this meeting. They're really some really terrific people in the uh, bureaucracy there that are trying to drive new regulations. And I do see an improvement, you know, over time, certainly a recognition of the issues, right? But I do think, again, it's a very competitive global marketplace. So it's not just which country in ASEAN or ASEAN compared to, let's say, India, which is getting a lot of press um, and interest as it relates to uh, de-risking and, and potential you know, movement of supply chain. But as we mentioned, those other markets too, like Mexico and Poland. So I do see an improvement. I, I guess what I would say overall is, you know, ASEAN has had, a, a number of ASEAN countries have had, as we know, political transitions in the last 18 months, and we're looking to some others going forward. That's really an area where government by government, they can make improvements. We're seeing a lot of private sector investors getting hung up in their partners, getting in trouble with the government as their transitions happening. There's adjacent risks that their partners are involved in, you know, kind of other sectors that are exposed, let's say the Vietnam anti-corruption crackdown in the real estate sector. So point being, you know, as investors are looking in ASEAN, there are improvements and there are things happening to help mm-hmm. plug that financing gap. But it, again, it's about making sure that at the government and the policy level, it's not politically driven. There's, you know, transparency and real predictability in what investors can expect country by country and then also as a market. All right. That's a great overview of what's happening in ASEAN. I've been chatting with Angela Mancini. She's the partner and head of APEC Markets and Control Risks. Angela, thank you for the time this morning. Great. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right. Take care. And we'll catch up again with you soon, Angela. In the meantime, stay tuned to MoneyFM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.